Welcome to GeoThoughts Talks. I'm Drew Bush. In GeoThoughts Talks, we bring you lectures from our team, partners, and collaborators on topics important to the GeoThink audience. GeoThink Summer Institute may have just concluded, but for those of you who missed it, here are three talks to remember. Our first talk is the day one morning panel session on smart cities. Discussion began with introductions by GeoThink head Renee Sieber and Associate Professor McGill University School of Environment and Department of Geography. Okay, so um, what is uh, GeoThink? Why am I here? What is GeoThink? Uh, GeoThink is a federally funded social sciences and humanities research council grant partnership grant that um, looks at the way technologies are changing the manner in which citizens communicate with cities and cities communicate with citizens. And with the introduction of um, people like Ian Perfect, it's also about how rural areas communicate with citizens and citizens communicate with rural areas, and sometimes how rural towns and Villages and rural areas communicate with each other. Um, so we have a, a beautiful panel today to talk, to first introduce you to what a concept of smart cities. And let me back up a minute and say, every year we hold a summer institute where we bring out a theme of the grant um, and introduce it to students and hopefully engage this diverse audience in a conversation about a topic and to work with Think as well um, to address a topic that's important to them. So this year's theme is smart cities and not only smart cities, but ensuring that smart cities are socially accessible. And that always means it's responsible. So we're going to have, start with a panel that just introduces you to the concept of what a smart city is because And uh, we're going to, uh, people who are going to join us are Stefan Roche from uh, University of Bath, Rob Fike from the University of Waterloo, Victoria Best uh, from the University of Calgary, uh, Stefan Guigran from the City of Montreal, Teresa Scaza from the University of Ottawa, and finally Pamela Robinson from Ryerson University. And with that, I'm I'm a professor of geomancy. 
inclusion of urban places is uh, especially linked to uh, special special cities. So, so th that's why for me, uh, and this is conclusion, especially uh, smart city is uh, essentially uh, especially the neighborhood city is a city where uh, uh, people, uh, all the stakeholders, uh, could develop um, and improve their uh, special skills and special uh, improved abilities. part of the smart, smart and digital city office. Um, I will give you my personal point of view. So it's not in opposition with the Social University of Montreal, but I will go a bit further. So you will have my point of view both as an insider of the city of Montreal, but also as someone who was previously an outsider, both as an activist and as a consultant. Uh, Initially, I was planning to give, to give you my regular presentation of what the city of Montreal is doing, but given the, the request to explain what was smart and to uh, provide some questions for you to think about, uh, I've, I've done something a bit more custom. Uh, so, like Stéphane, uh, I see four different axes, four different points, but they are not the same, uh, that, that make uh, a city smart. The, the first one is services for everybody, so providing as a city services for everybody. Uh, the second one is democratic process, and uh, with that I'll put citizen engagement, uh, accountability, and transparency. And some people could argue that they are different, but for the sake of simplicity, I put them together today. Uh, optimization and efficiency of how the public body is working. And the last one is economic development. Each of those different taxes uh, has its own internal function, but mainly, and the most important issue for smart city is that together they are forming some tensions, and that's what makes smart difficult. Uh, the, the, the city of Montreal, the, the, the action plan of the city of Montreal, is mainly focused on uh, services for all. So that was the, the, the initial focal point. Uh, I, if you have time, or if you have done it before, uh, the action plan is available online. But it really started by asking citizens what they needed and focus on answering those questions. Uh, the, 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 the important thing is to think about, so it's, it's, it's easy to receive the request of the citizen and say, okay, well, they, they want improved mobility, so we'll work on improving mobility and, and, and so on. But, and, and usually, the three other points that are listed could easily support uh, improving citizens. Uh, we have something within the city which is a user experience bureau or office, which we are working with, and the, the idea is really to improve citizen experience. And that's everything, you know, it's not just when they are calling the 311 and, and whether they have a good answer or not. Uh, quality of roads is citizen experience. So it's, it's a large point of view of what is citizen experience. So better citizen service can be supported by more efficient city. I mean, if we improve our system, 
would be more efficient task carving and systemizing what's being done. Obviously, a better democratic process, better accountability will support uh, a, a better service. And if we understand better what citizens want, we are able to, to deliver a better service. And finally, economic development obviously will support uh, how we how we are able to, to provide services to the citizen because we have a better fiscal base and also because we have more systems, better tools to the point where you have tension is really where we have to ask ourselves some questions and, and how things can move forward. So, from my point of view, the, the, the really key issue is efficiency. It's very easy to develop efficiency and cost optimization without thinking of the global future. And, and that's very difficult because in a, in a bureaucratic organization, each of the points are great and pushed by specific department. So usually optimization will be done by the IT department, which is not the same people of those who are working on uh, democratic reform and open government and things like that. So what, 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 what the, the obvious tension that we have? Uh, well, the first one obviously is uh, going digital will uh, increase the digital divide. That's, that's the obvious one. We think about it for 20 years. Uh, some government decided to go digital first, and, and some people will say, oh, yeah, that's good, government is finally arriving in the 21st century. But obviously, uh, it means that all the people who do not have access or easy access to digital devices or who are not equipped to work with them will be less. Uh, in Montreal, what we've decided is something called Omnicanal, which means that all the existing canal will remain. We are adding digital approach, but the phone will remain the, what we call the bar, which is the in-present bureau will remain because we know that some people will not be able or will be less willing to use technical uh, approach to, to, to work with this solution. So that's another one, but the, the one that are coming is everything around database optimization. So using artificial intelligence or just statistical information to optimize the process of the city. Uh, one of the existing, and to see where we still can try out, uh, there's been some uh, evaluation that the 311 regional is less used by uh, people with, who are poor or in neighbors who are poor. So if I take the data generated by 311 and say, okay, here are the locations where I have more requests, I end up serving people who are asking more, which tend to be richer or more techni technologically advanced people. So we have to be very careful of how we do this optimization, because if we just look at the data without understanding who generates the data and what, what are the bias that are created, I'm just amplifying what's being done. Uh, and, and usually the, re the result is I'm serving better the way that are the people who are officially asking service, but they might not be the one who needs the most those services. Uh, it's the same for crowdsourcing. We, we say rural crowdsourcing is democratic stuff, everybody can participate, but that's the same. It tends to be reversive because people who can participate are, are people who have more time, who are more uh, technologically literate. So it means that I will tend to forget or not to see 
the point of view of people who have less time or who are less visibility. Uh, and, and one of the issues is more and more citizens in general are asking for visibility. We have more and more people asking, okay, you do whatever you want, but I want to drive efficiently. I don't care if I go to neighbors where there are poor people and where people will be more vulnerable. I just want to, to, to be faster. And all the issue of making sure that the most vulnerable uh, cyclists and pedestrians uh, have, need to have their place will tend to be pushed towards optimization and making everything more so that's, that's the kind of issue where you will see that it's very easy to have strong tensions between the idea of serving everybody, but on the other end, going to something more efficient. And the point is, the third one, which is the democratic process, usually might serve one or the other. So if people, as, as a community, as a city, are voting for an approach that will lean toward efficiency, we might move with the one which is uh, a more Serving everybody. So I, I, I tend to see it as something. We, we see the smart city as okay, I'll deploy some technology and while it's working and that's quick to do. Very quick to, to put a new software or even to put some Wi Fi or some cell fiber. But there is a process of maturity that is much longer and much more difficult to see, but and takes and takes years. And, and citizens, people, are less, they want solutions to see. We tend to be in an age where uh, digital will provide some quick solution, easy to fix. And I mean, it's working when you're using Facebook and things like that, but in the context of a complex body like the city, it cannot work like that. We have to take time. It has to take time to understand the impact of technology. And, uh, and we are not there yet. And it's not just the city of Montreal. I mean, it's everybody. I haven't seen, I'm, I'm trying to read as much as I can. And I haven't seen any compelling uh, city that has a smart approach that's really able to take into account citizens and, and create a serious engagement. As bureaucracies, we tend to be slow, or we tend to have some specific dedicated way to exchange with citizens. And it has to change. It has, it has to be improved. It has to be uh, thought with how we are working in the 21st century, which is using all style systems like meeting with people and also new technological approach. And it will take years both as, as government to open those new channels of communication, but also to citizens to understand that they have to participate. And, and there is a, a long road to do so that people are understand what's being requested find a common vocabulary, a common way to exchange the need and the service of different people. And I have something else to add, but I forgot it. Um, the, the, the. We, we tend to see so much the technology as an end, while engagement in the end is what we need. And we tend to be an in attention economy. So everybody from Facebook to Uber, to everybody who is using it, they want any minute of your attention to tell you what they have to say. And in that situation, bringing people to spend one hour, half a day, 
to participate in what they should do, where we don't have any gamifications, where the, the, the benefit will be long term, will be very difficult. So we, we know that we are in a situation where, as a public body, we have to improve. I mean, the city of Montreal, like almost any public body, has to improve a lot, and we have a lot to do to get better at what we are doing. And I think we are already improving at a good pace, given, <coughs> the, given the size of, of the body. But there is this whole question of how do we engage, how do we raise attention, both of the have, but also of the have not, uh, that, that still, still has to be uh, thought and Like crazy, so what do you guys want to do with it? 
this isn't how we build a smart city. We don't decide, you know, to, to network everything and to censor everything and to measure everything and then be like, hey, can we do something cool with it? I really think smart cities, the focus of smart cities must be on what is the value? What is the value to us as citizens? Not just the value to kind of the rich who can pay for it, but to everybody. Um, what is the value to the environment and, and reducing the environmental impact of our really intense cities? I mean, we have so many people living in cities. It is essential um, moving forward to make them, reduce the impact of them on the environment. And smart cities could be an option for that, but I think they really need to be adequately thought through. We need to really understand what are these big problems that we're trying to tackle, and then how can smart cities be applied to those problems? And, uh, and so moving forward, I think that's really important. Uh, just for some context, in the United States, so, uh, the Canadian government is, is mimicking the US Department of Transportation Smart City Challenge. Um, anybody know who the winner was? Uh, in Ohio, it was Columbus. Smart Columbus. Columbus, Ohio, actually, one of the bigger cities that only has bus rapid transit now. They don't, or they're on their way to bus rapid transit. They don't have uh, a rail system. Uh, and so, but the, uh, so I spent some time in Columbus learning about just what Smart Columbus is. Uh, and really, the key to their application, how Smart Columbus beat out. Uh, San Francisco and other really big cities who have kind of the tech sector corner is that they did a lot of um, socioeconomic analysis, uh, looked at a lot of demographics and realized there were some really underserved neighborhoods. One of those neighborhoods is the Linden neighborhood. They have the highest rate of infant mortality. Uh, they have the lowest rates of education completion. Um, completion and uh, employment, and it was just really problematic. So they said, we want to focus our smart cities on what the citizens need. And they talked to the citizens down in this Linden neighborhood uh, and really understood what the challenges were. Uh, for a lot of the mothers, they just don't go to any pre or postnatal care. Uh, they just uh, haven't gone. It's too difficult to get there. Uh, if they have other children, it's really problematic. So for the first time, this was the only city in the smart cities kind of application pool that actually went and talked to the communities that they wanted to uh, influence the smart cities. And it was just such a refreshing change, which is why now uh, Smart Columbus has $140 million uh, to become the smartest city in the United States. It's a lot of money. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, some people say it's just smoke and mirrors. You know, they went after the poor people to get it. Other people just genuinely believe that this is the right strategy. How that plays out is still to be determined, but I think there's a really great opportunity uh, to implement that in Canada and really try to get it right this time uh, and build smart cities for everybody. Uh, so um, I don't want to go on too much. I'll end there since I'll talk now about the Thank you. Thank you.
with the typical what lawyers do. Um, we were asked to think about the question of what what does uh, smart cities mean to me, um, and from from my perspective and from the, the my approach to the research, I want to think of smart cities as sensor laden cities, and so you can take the very different definition from what other people have provided. And that's why we're thinking about it because it'll it, to a large extent the idea of the smart city is a city that is um, collecting data and collecting data in a variety of different ways uh, for a variety of different purposes. Um, and ideally, those purposes are going to be ones that enhance citizen lives and improve citizen lives. Uh, but I think that uh, from a legal perspective, it's important to, to look at that collection of data uh, and to, to, to interrogate it, to question it, to think about uh, what that means, how it's being done. And the other piece that lawyers tend to look at is how do you how are things arranged behind the scenes? Um, so there's certainly a governance piece as well. Some of the other presenters have talked about smart cities as inclusive, as open, uh, as involving citizen engagement, and all of those are governance issues, and those are ones that are issues of law as well. How do you how do you make decisions around what technology is being implemented within the city? How do you structure those? And, and, and so there's that governance piece. Um, so in terms of um, smart cities, in my own research, um, I think that one of the things that, that I've noticed is there's a lot of different ways in which smart cities come into being. And ideally, they should be this, this planned and thought through, cohesive uh, set of decisions um, to implement certain technologies and to do it in a certain way to achieve particular ends. I think in practice, it sometimes happens in a much more piecemeal fashion, uh, where something has to be done, somebody is selling technology that will uh, offer a particular Solutions. It seems like a good idea. Uh, sometimes there are cost benefits associated with, with going that particular route, and sometimes those cost benefits are tied to data, so I'll talk about that as well. Um, so there, there are a number of different ways in which these things happen, and I think it's important to look at that and to think about that and, and what that means and how decisions are being made. Um, so, for example, what kinds of contractual uh, relationships underlie smart cities and the different technologies that are implemented in smart cities. Um, and questions that interest me in my research are, for example, in those contractual arrangements, who owns the data that's being uh, generated or collected by the sensors? Uh, it, often the infrastructure is too expensive for the city, so they pair with a private sector partner that provides the sensors, uh, that provides the algorithms for processing the data that's collected and returns to the city uh, usable products, data analyzed data, processed data. Um, so who owns that data? Is it the city that owns the data? Is it the private sector company that owns the data? What is the relationship uh, if, if, this, if the city decides to part ways with that company? Do they get to keep the data that has been generated or collected? So there are a lot of in interesting issues in the context around the, the, the product that is generated through the, uh, the implementation of these sensors, and those are questions that interest me. Uh, who owns the algorithms that are used in processing the data? Does the city have any insight? Does it get to question what assumptions go into the algorithm? Um, the um, ownership issues are obviously going to have uh, uh, implications for things like access and transparency. Um, so there may be things that that maybe the city wants to provide to make the data available as open data, but runs into the problem that they can't be taken advantage of. And that's something that I, I came across in some of my research, for example, on public transit data. Sensors to collect real-time GPS data. 
data infrastructure because we needed time to get data with all my private sector company and the city wanted to make this real time they were complaining about our data and not your data. So these are some of the things that we see worked out in the contract um, between cities and suppliers. In some cases, data can be a trade-off for um, cost. Um, and this is particularly the case with personal information. So all of the, the questions you're asking in the context of smart cities and smart centers, public Wi-Fi, everyone's public Wi-Fi, right? Wouldn't it be great if everywhere you went in the city, you had free public Wi-Fi, well, who's going to pay for that? And how is that being paid for? In some cities, that's been paid for by citizen personal data. So companies will put the infrastructure in, they enter the data in the city, they install the infrastructure for free, the city doesn't pay anything, they get their free public Wi-Fi, every user who signs up has to provide personal information, um, and then their activity is logged, and of course that data is, is then communicated to third-party advertisers who send them handy notices about and ads about shops or promises of purchases in the city. And that's how it's paid for. And that may be a perfectly fine trade-off from the citizen's perspective in exchange for Wi-Fi. It may not be for others. Um, and so these are some of the questions that we, we look at and think about in all. Is, you know, is, this the, is, is this an appropriate trade-off? Is this the arrangement we want? How are citizens being protected in this context? Is the value of free public, does the value of free public Wi-Fi outweigh the privacy Cybersecurity is a huge issue for, um, for anyone who's collecting or processing data these days, and this won't be long enough to look at the news to realize how big an issue this is. Um, and so, of course, there are also issues with the security of the infrastructure that cities are putting in place when it comes to um, smart cities, and, and so security is another uh, set of issues that are of interest in the legal context. Um, the, um, Citizens. Um, and another issue that I've encountered in, in my work, and I think it'd be interesting, and I'll just finish with this one. I have more time tomorrow to talk about 
is what happens in a country like Canada with a relatively small population base, um, looking for uh, digital services, uh, sensors, support from infrastructure. Um, we also look to um, multinational corporations and corporations in the United States. Um, a, a lot of these uh, tools are, are packaged, uh, are packages, they make packages that are already designed for uh, consumption by, you know, different cities, different client cities. Um, and uh, so what happens when the assumptions that are built into certain types of digital technology tools are designed for a different um, uh, visual, longer cultural context such as the United States, um, but are being used in Canada? How does that play out? How does that shape or affect um, decisions that are made? Or how does certain design go over? What it looks like? How it feels when you use it? Um, and I can give you examples of that, but I won't be taking too much of your time. <laughs> All of that to say there's lots of interesting questions in law, uh, lots of things to unpack when it comes to Hi everyone, I'm Pamela Robinson. I'm a professor, a professor of urban regional planning at Ryerson University in Toronto. And I'm also a registered professional urban planner. And so one of the things I'll talk to you about for my little tour today is how planners tackle their smart city and what it means to think about a smart city. Um, through um, a planning perspective. In case you didn't know what urban planners do, our, our principal function is to intervene in economic markets on behalf of the public good. And so that's a really interesting thing if you think about it through the lens of sustainability and equity inclusion, to ask the question, what is the public good through a smart city? And, and whose job is it to protect it? And whose job is it to articulate it? And how do we actually make sure that public good functions are coming out of smart city activities? And Stefan, talk about some of those things this morning a little bit, and I'm going to talk about them a bit more. And Rob and I are going to lead you through an exercise this afternoon, I hope, that will help you to start flesh this out a little bit more. And so, you know, as a planner, when I watch this smart city world unfold around Toronto, we just had Google um, <coughs> come with their new, used to be called Sidewalk Labs, now they're called Alphabet. Alphabet's coming to Toronto to save our city and to fix it in the waterfront, um, which is a really interesting proposition. Uh, there's a little bit of hubris in there that we don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to fix our city, uh, and that this outsider organization that's largely technology-based, which is kind of a frustrating thing, um, it kind of irritates me a little bit as a planner, but you know, I, I'm interested in the discussion about well, what exactly is it that we're trying to fix, and what do we need to do? Um, so kind of talked a little bit this morning about innovation and efficiency, and those are two of the primary drivers around smart city movements, and as a planner, those are, you know, nobody wants to say, hey, I'm the champion of the inefficient city, right? Mm -hmm. Efficiency is a really appealing proposition, but, but I'm going to ask you today to really think actively about what is it like to live in an efficient city. Has anyone ever been to Canberra, Australia before, the capital of Australia? Canberra, I think people. I'm going to pick on Canberra since no one's from here. I went there when I was a planning graduate student, and it was a really humbling experience for me because it showed me what happens when you let planners have too much power and influence, they strip all the fun and vibrancy out of that city. It's technically a really well-planned place, and it is boring as all hell. <laughs> there's nothing, there's no texture, there's no grit. If you think about some of the most vibrant cities and places that you've been in, in Toronto, if you think about Kensington Market, all the things that make Kensington Market interesting are also illegal. <laughs> so, when we're efficient, sometimes we strip the life and the vitality out of cities. Okay, and so, um, yes, we do need to get places faster, but at what cost? Okay, so there's this tension sometimes between efficiency and quality of life. 
There's also this question of efficient for whom. Who is driving the ethic of efficiency and who, for whom are we optimizing the algorithm? Um, if we're only optimizing it, are we just efficient Strava bike data? Um, City of Ottawa purchased Strava bike data. How many of you use the Strava app on your, on your mobile phone to track your bike routes? None of you. Okay, in my city, the people who use Strava the most in our group of friends are pretty affluent white men with very expensive road bikes who wear a lot of Lycra early in the morning. <laughs> my city should not be planned by the recreational cycling whims of dudes in Lycra. Okay? <laughs> so, you know, I'm being cheeky and somewhat I'm poking a little bit, but we really need to ask questions around optimization for whom and based on whose data. Same with the innovation agenda. For whom are we innovating and whose innovation agenda is this? Is it the innovation agenda of private sector firms? That's good, that's good for the economy, it's good for wealth production. Or is it the innovation agenda of people living in communities that are really struggling, trying to create good work opportunities for more people? Or people who don't have access to education? Or the kinds of community services that they need to make their lives be vibrant and dynamic and healthy and well. So I'm gonna ask you to listen and think critically about things. As a planner, one of the big questions I have about smart cities is who's planning the smart city and whose job is it to keep the public safe? The classic political science question is who are the actors and what do they do? We really, you, we, all of us need to think critically about whose agenda is the smart city agenda. Smart city infrastructure is infrastructure. It's like pipes, it's like electricity. We have planning processes when we lay new infrastructure pathways. Okay, if I want to build a new road, I have to go through an environmental assessment process. I have to go through all kinds of planning <coughs> review. But if I'm Cisco and I want to lay a smart city technology network, what infrastructure oversight is happening there? What questions are we asking about where the sensors are going? And more importantly to me as a planner, where are the sensors not going? Who are we missing and who's invisible? These kinds of questions are really important. I think we need to think about the questions around opportunities. I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm a Luddite who hates technology. I'm not at all. But I think we need to critically ask what opportunities can the smart city create and what challenges do we have to make sure that those opportunities are reaped and distributed for the most number of people as possible. Okay, smart and equitable have to go hand in hand. This question of just for whom is one that I really want you to keep top of mind as you're thinking about things like this. I also think the question of, is the smart city, the set of technology that we need to deliver the things that matter is a really important thing to think about. Okay, what are the goals that your city has? To what extent can smart technology and smart activities help achieve those goals? And as importantly, what are the gaps that smart won't fill and what attention is being paid to those things too? We're very, as a society, I think, prone towards sexy bells and whistles and shiny objects. Smart will get a lot of attention, but smart can't fix everything. Okay, so we need to be thinking about what are the gaps that SMART can't fill and how do we make sure that those gaps are being addressed by other public policy interventions. You'll see in a little bit um, when Rob and I get going, I'm going to share some work that my students did um, as a way of helping you to start thinking critically about SMART City. But I'm going to offer you four pieces of advice for your work together as an interdisciplinary group of students in this institute, in this workshop. Um, and this is based on the teaching planning for a long time. Um, but these are things I really want you to think about, especially because we're super lucky to have partners from municipal government here. The first thing I want you to remember, uh, and it's about creating a culture of healthy criticism but also respect, if the solution was easy, government would have done it already. Okay? 
The things that we're trying to tackle are hard and they're intractable and they're challenging. And if you think, oh, you should just do this lickety split, if it was easy, we have plenty of really bright, capable people working in current government, people who want to work as public servants on behalf of the public good. If it's not happening, there are reasons why. So I'm going to ask you to be active learners and active listeners and active questioners when our friends from government and the private sector come and talk, but also respectful that if it looks easy, you probably don't know enough about it because there are lots of smart people who are pushing hard on this. So if it's easy, recovery will be done. Okay? The second thing I'm going to leave you with <laughs> is it's a hell of a lot easier to criticize things than it is to fix it. Okay? And as academics, holy smokes, we all get lots of praise when we criticize things. Okay? It's easy to rip stuff apart, but it's much harder to take that criticism and put it back together and actually deliver real action on the ground. And that's something that we teach in planning school all the time. You can sit in your chair with your arms back and your feet up and say, that sucks, that sucks, that sucks. My answer to my students is always like, okay, you go fix it. They're like, fixing things is hard. Doing the work is hard. So I'm going to remind you that criticism matters. We can move forward with good critical thinking, but don't dismiss how hard it is to actually move things forward. In a smart city, we've got a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of actors. We've got politicians. You've got bureaucrats, you've got residents, you've got private sector firms, okay? Nobody has the power to do everything all by themselves. This is coalition building, it's political, and it takes time and it takes political and social capital and really hard money, but it's hard to do. So let's push hard, but let's also really respect that this is difficult work to do. The third thing I'm going to ask you to remind yourselves of is that not everybody's like you, okay? One of the things that I bump up against with my students all the time is, They've been raised in a generation where you've had access to internet technology since you were little, or maybe even you've never known a life without the internet. Here's some embracing context for you. When I was in planning school in 1992 to 1994, we didn't even have access to PDF documents. Okay, when we wanted to look at municipal plans, we had to type letters and send them by regular mail because all municipal government people had email, and we had to send a check and buy the municipal plan. Okay? So in the 25 years since I've been in school, a lot has changed, okay? Not everybody has access to the same technology that you have in your house, okay? Not everybody is as engaged in things as you are. And so when you're thinking about the role of smart city solutions, keep in mind that just because you do something the way you do it doesn't mean that everyone else does it. In research methodology, we call that the ecological fallacy. When you scale up your own individual experience to represent the population as a whole, it's bad research. Okay, so don't commit the ecological fallacy while you're here with us. I'm going to leave you with one more kind of parting plea. I'm going to ask you to really pay attention to the kind of language you use and embrace the use of the word and instead of or. Okay, there is no one smart city solution that we're going to tackle today. What we're going to come out with by the end of three days here is a whole suite of activities. So instead of criticizing someone's thing saying, you should do, don't do this, do this instead, think about whether both of those are better together. There's much more toolkit work happening than one particular thing that's going to fix things. So be mindful that there's probably no one best solution, but a suite of many good things worth trying. So I'm going to really encourage you to leave the space for the assembly of lots of opportunities rather than trying to get to the one legal solution. There's probably that thing that we can try. There aren't really any unicorns, right? And there's probably not one smart city solution, but a whole suite of opportunities. So I hope 
you know, by the end of your, your three days with us, you'll leave with a much richer, more textured understanding of the nuance of just how hard this work is. But also, most importantly for me, as an educator, you've got clarity on the work that needs to be done. This is, you know, that expression, many hands make light work. We need lots of people from lots of disciplinary perspectives to tackle this work. Um, and so I'm really excited to have all of you here. Uh, and I hope you're going to roll up your sleeves and dig in and work hard because we all need the good work. Also, choosing between you and your grades. Um, <laughs> so I realize that tension is there, and I'm going to try and keep some of my comments. Uh, so on the brief side, I uh, wrote some things down and progressively started scratching them out. <laughs> and my colleagues have, have addressed them probably much better way than I could. Um, I come at the smart city in a couple ways. Right? When I think of it, I, I, I think of it through two, I guess, uh, not quite complementary lenses. I think of it both from a personal side and from a research side, and they don't always mesh. Uh, I'll give you an example of when I first thought of this, some of the concepts of smart city from a personal side. Uh, about uh, four years ago, I was working on revisions to a paper that had to be uh, written. It might not surprise anyone here who knows me that at about 11, I was still going, and my router and I live in a small town, so I'm, I'm away from universities and smarter centers. Um, so I went out with my laptop, and my quest was to drive up and down the street and find somebody's network that <laughs> <laughs> didn't have any security, so I could send my finished revisions in. Um, if you're ever in New Hamburg, you can go near the bakery. Um, <laughs> Or the public library. It may have changed since then. I haven't done any survey, so I have to start a new expedition there. So, from a personal perspective, it really was about capabilities and affordances. What does this technology let me do? Uh, and that carries over also from the research side. The research side, I've persisted in Smart City for, for a number of reasons. I've got a, a long standing interest in how all of us interact with each other to try and solve really tough problems. Uh, not the problems that we can fix simply clicking swipe and so on, but those ones that involve us discussing things. They're the, the wicked problems, and uh, they're the ones that are tough to define. So I see the, the smart city as contributing to our ability to do that, providing new channels for us to communicate with each other, um, to share information, um, it also provides us with a wealth of data. Uh, you shouldn't get too transfixed about data and what it can do and all that, but it's awfully fun. Everybody here, I think, probably, if you're not a real geek, um, you probably should leave the room. Um, <laughs> but you're interested in data, you're interested in patterns and problems and how do we solve them. And um, despite the somewhat dark side of, of surveillance and 
the wealth of information allows us to look at old problems in new ways. So tracking people without their permission is bad. If we've got ways to do this in an anonymized fashion that doesn't reveal anyone's identity, we can start to learn more about how people move without permission. So we can develop better strategies for prioritizing um, areas that need to be remedied or fixed in some way. So I, I think of the smart city from a research perspective as some of the learning labs. Um, we're, we're never going to be in a situation where we're starting from scratch, and maybe this comes that we're building new capabilities on top, and we're not doing this in an even fashion. You can't shut down the city of Montreal for a year and fix everything all at once. So we're doing this as we, as we go along, taking programs that are in place and finding ways to make them interoperable with other types of technology and tools that we have. So that, that living lab, that, that organism that the city is, I think is a fascinating <laughs> and all of you are going to have really And again, I'm going to follow up on a comment that a few others have made. We should be thinking, um, as Pamela said, not about just people like us. Even if we have Wi-Fi that's available throughout the city, keep in mind that not everyone uses those resources on the same way. There's an interesting paper by Mr. Chang, 2006, I forget the name, something like multi-seed urbanism, uh, where he's talking about how even people that have the same devices will be using them in very different ways for cultural reasons, for economic reasons, and so on. So some of you might be having a pretty have a pretty hefty data plan. You're interacting with a broader web that we have quite extensively. Others are really hunting on their resources. Um, so we're not all doing things the same way to protect some sort of priority list. Um, Maybe two other things we should mention. Point this as a break point. So this idea of spatial patterns and looking for not just where the data are, but where they're not. That starts to tell you something. Where are the data shadows telling us? We do know there are people there. We do know that people are actually uh, living their lives and taking a whole host of processes that are going on socio economic and more biophysical. Uh, but we don't necessarily have data everywhere. That doesn't mean it's a blank I think we need to be thinking about those in context of the uh, next week. We also should be thinking about um, the visibility and invisibility of, of technology. Um, when we know that technology has really become embedded in society, it's a really important thing to know. And it's not until it, it fails or isn't available that we start to realize just how it's one of the nice things about going through a national provincial park is that we don't have Wi-Fi. So I've got mixed feelings about the fact that Parks Canada is putting Wi-Fi in our parks now. Because um, I know somebody's going to be screaming something like that on Spotify that I won't want to hear at that particular point. Um, but, but think about that. When is technology invisible? And how is that conditioning in some way? How you approach the way you look at the city, the way you interact with each other in that context. Um, <coughs> maybe the, the, the final thing uh, I want to talk about now, 
what I think about two things that Pamela said, and I'm happy to adapt to the question. Um, it's what is the public good Everything infrastructure, whether it's data, whether it's capabilities, and services, how is that different from what we have in terms of public good and public Particularly when we have a lot of our information being privatized into partnerships. So a portion of you are uh, contributing to Apple's wealth, uh, another portion of you are contributing to Google's. Maybe a Windows Phone person who's not contributing to anybody. But we're all we're all in some way in different ecosystems, and that information privatized isn't necessarily available for all. So uh, with that and, and the need for people to get to the break, I There is no easy solution yet. Um, so in, in Europe, they adopted a law that uh, for government to be able to justify the intervention algorithm or a system that gave an answer. So for example, if you ask for a safety train, or you ask for uh, to access some resources, and you're being refused, you have the right to ask what was the reason why you were refused. So it will force uh, developers of algorithms to be able to explain how how the system ended up through the solution. The issue is that the more we move forward in algorithm and machine learning technology, the less we are able to understand the outcome. So the most advanced way of, of using those algorithms, which is deep learning uh, and, and neural system, for the moment we have no clue how they ended up it's, it's the kind of system that's used for categorizing images, so being able to recognize a cat and things like that. We don't know what's the criteria that the algorithm used to say, yeah, that's a cat or that's a dog. So, and, and there, there will be an interesting tension there between how the, the, the technology moves forward and how the legal framework follows to eventually force 
first building project and uh, organization corporation providing project services like insurance will come up to some point and it's already there in practice where you will be refused and, and there is no reason why you would decide an algorithm that learned using some data that turned out to work really well. So th there, there are some, some things that are moving forward. Uh, recently I was reading uh, an article saying that uh, machine learning is the apex of bureaucracy. The definition of bureaucracy is you don't know why, how things are being made, and you don't know who is responsible of what, which is the definition of an RM. Uh, and, and algorithm is, is can be seen as the apex of that. So, and I, I'm not necessarily subscribing of the point of view of bureaucracies, but the fact that it, it, there, might, there might be a natural fit between already obscure process supported by apps, and, and, and that's where we're going. Yeah, I think that, I don't know how many of you remember your grade three math teacher saying, show your math, right? Like, you could just come up with the answer, but you had to show the steps you take. And I feel increasingly in a democratic, smart city, show your math is going to be a really big political rallying cry that we're going to have to ask. But it's going to be difficult because the math is proprietary, and it's the math that makes all the private sector firms money. And so there's this weird distortion that we're seeing emerging, even from the earliest days where Open government calls for transparency of how government makes decisions, but we don't see a reciprocal transparency around how decisions are being generated from the math that we're buying using the data from the census, separate census networks that are being made. So I think the question is super important, uh, but we're, it, it's going to be tough. For, for, for those who want an interesting book on that, there is uh, one name. Uh, Reference of mass destructions, but mass as M A T H, okay. uh, which give a whole bunch of examples of how algorithms are being used already and what the impact that it can have on our day to day life. Yeah, and I just want to say, you probably all remember, a number of years ago when um, states became very interested in um, international treaties that would raise the level of protection for copyright. Um, and we got to the point where we all became pirates and there was this whole you know, <laughs> upping the ante and uh, additional layers of copyright protection, um, additional ways to go after people who now would be able to use it to school. Uh, and there was you know, very uh, significant in Canada, leading up to the amendment of the law in 2012, there was significant public engagement pushing back against some of the proposed changes to the copyright law uh, and asking for more information. So a lot of excitement around copyright law because of the impact of digital technologies, both on uh, how that affected owner's rights, but also how use responded to corrupted technology. Bubbling in the background now um, is the beginnings, the rumblings of uh, increased international uh, trade treaty attention to the protection of trade secrets. Um, and it doesn't sound sexy at all. It doesn't sound like it affects any of us at all. But this is this is the law to protect data and algorithms, right, in the hands of the private sector. And this is what's bubbling up to this international level where we're going to, states are all going to agree to increase the protection for trade secrets, uh, to limit access to trade secrets, to do all of these things that will impact us in very significant ways because algorithms um, and large uh, compilations of data uh, that may include personal information 
are all uh, confidential commercial information. This is about protecting the stuff and limiting the ability to, um, to access it, uh, limiting the ability for governments to create, uh, to, to put restraints on governments to create ways in which there can be oversight of banking. So these, although they don't sound sexy, and they don't sound like they impact us in the way that, that uh, you know, the copyright treaty did, uh, this is the new frontier, and this is something very important that, that we need to watch, because this is about, this is about algorithms and data, and our ability to, to figure out what's going on here. Another question? Yep. My name is Alexandra Kulik, I'm from Cambridge University. Um, I think the thing that sort of struck me more, more broadly, and, and again, I'm trying to sort of frame it um, in a way uh, that makes sense to everybody, is, is more in the context of social justice. Um, and this idea with smart cities, obviously trying to um, improve democracy, right, um, enhance democracy, um, uh, accountability, transparency, roles of government in, in equity and creating equity. It strikes me, and again, this is somebody with a background working in homelessness, um, that there's a fundamental tension between smart cities and, and neoliberal agendas that tends to sort of interplay with that. 
and again, when we think about services for everybody, um, I, I love that ideal, um, but I, I'm from a community where those things, you have to fight tooth and nail for every step um, and every game. So I think what I'm asking is like how smart cities, if they can, like maybe to speak to that tension, um, but just can this idea and moving beyond and these sort of broader notions help us um, address issues that are happening in communities and especially for those who are more vulnerable, right? That we can actually start to move beyond some of the rhetoric that keeps us sort of mired in the social issues that um, communities are struggling, cities are struggling. Hopefully make sense. Throw that out there. <laughs> Well, I think I'll, I'll pick up with the starter point. I think, you know, picking up on the issue of, you know, could, can the smart city help in making our homes is a really good question because we know that our data set around people who are seeking things are weak and, and mixed, right? I mean, it wasn't even that long ago we had an inventory or a census of, of people who were, who had, you know, marginal housing situations. So if, if the smart city is data driven, the question we first have to ask is how good are the data sets that we um, I, you can answer this because it's a good question, but if the data that you have to work with is hard to work with without the smart layer, I worry the smartness will compound um, making decisions on these data sets that we need. So um, aside from all of the social challenges of trying to figure out what the connection is between how to find people decent, affordable, long-term places to live and technology, I think just from a basic data perspective of that population, I'm not so optimistic it's going to deliver very much. Uh, and my worry is that the smart city focus will distract from the really vital work we need to do to make our cities more ethical. I can add, uh, just to get back to all, one of the points that I'm frequently raising is that, I mean, a few decades ago, cities were just about making roads and making water access. And, and the more it goes, the more uh, it has more responsibility. So now there is the question of taking care of homelessness, although it should be, I mean, it's Quebec, it should be a provincial, uh, provincial thing maybe. Yeah, it is the kind of thing that's being tackled by the protocol. <laughs> now there is some request to be more smart, more intelligent, but the resources are more than the same. So I think that the, the place where the, the, the efficiency question is interesting is to be able to maybe serve more efficiently the people that fit in a simple uh, in a simple bucket and say I'm able to uh, uh, answer a few one-one questions, basic things like that more efficiently, which currently takes a huge amount of time and, and, and resource, be more efficient in how I'm fixing my pipes and things like that, and, and be able to put more money in, in places where it, it, you have to take the time and you and I'm not saying that's what's happening currently. I'm not saying that that's where the, 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 the circus or the, the, the overall summit might go. But uh, I think that if groups are supporting people like homeless are able to raise the flag that those issues still exist, there might be a way to have a balance between efficiency for the larger part and maybe more work for the people who really need it. But oh, uh, I mean, it is a kind of sandwich that is constantly getting higher and higher with some resources out of the same. Great, last question. <laughs> 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 I have is 
because you know I'm not optimistic that we are going to have as pretty housing and all of these things in the whole generation. I think we have been having I think that's one of the challenges in this city is you know dealing with school graduation to um, to negotiate around behavioral behavioral support. So you know I think that where the data is located is a big issue because it may not be located at all. It may not even be located in Canada, and that's again the Canadian perspective. Um, so that's one question, and uh, and the other question of course is who gets to have access to that data um, and for what purpose. And so that's another big issue. And um, Pam gives the uh, example of Stratford, which I think uh, the city of Ottawa announced that recently that it was purchasing Stratford data, cycling data for, for planning purposes. But in terms of the contract with the city of Ottawa, provided that this was proprietary data that was proprietary to Stratford, so the city could use it for planning purposes, but it could not make it available to the data. And it could not disclose the data uh, either. Um, in any other way. So, so you have a context where data is being collected from people biking in Ottawa, is being used for planning purposes in Ottawa, but is not capable of being shared with the citizens of Ottawa or made available in any other way to, um, to, uh, to civil society. And so you know, that raises really interesting questions about data ownership. So I think these are things that we, we have to ask in this market context. Is going to own and control all of this data and how sustained is our access to that data if we decide we no longer want to contract with certain companies that have too much reliance um, interest data in and, and that's exactly the point that raised our question. So there again you have the tension between efficiency and other aspects. So as a government when we currently when we want to get some good tools and the first thing is we tend to be not very well served in terms of good tools. As, as government, we frequently end up with custom systems that are not efficient. And more and more, we see some very great, interesting systems, but they are SaaS. They are software as a service with the data being hosted in cloud. So, and, and our procurement system is not done for that. I mean, in Montreal, we have lots of difficulties to work with SaaS because they come with very specific contract. Usually we set the rules. Here is the contract that we want the provider to follow. Now things are being completely reverted. They come, I mean, Google, they, they will not work with doing the custom contract with us, they don't care. But their tools are efficient and interesting, so they will come with their contract. And somehow we have to comply with that contract and the way they are structured. And, and that's very difficult because on one, on one hand, they have those kind of tools, not Google specifically, but SaaS tools are very efficient, uh, updated very frequently, they're consistently improved, and they are cheap compared to other, uh, other options, mainly on premise systems. So the, 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 the technical point of view is, yeah, let's go with SaaS. It's obviously much better, better tools and, and, and more cost effective, but raising some great questions about this. I just wanted to comment about the Strava thing. Uh, so last year we started a tool named MPL Trajet, which is a tool to crowdsource uh, people moving around. And 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 people said, oh, come on, guys! I mean, don't don't do an app. Just buy Google's data or buy buy Strava's data. And 
And we had a look, so Google wasn't providing the, the level of detail that we wanted. And, and when we had a look to the map of Strava, it was obvious that it was inspired towards <laughs> white <laughs> men yeah. with expensive bikes. Um, and so now we have the, the data generated that we can make open because it's our data. And, and when people were running the application, they had to agree that it should be as uh, and, and the result that we see, and it's still preliminary because we are working on them, but we have a loop on the ground that helps us to see how many bikes are passing on bike paths. And we see that even though the, 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 the match between our data and the loops is not perfect, it's way closer than what Strava was providing. And, and that there is this strong question of where do we get our data from, because obviously uh, that, that there are lots of limitations data that we can buy, and usually people like Strava will give you high-level data, but they will, you will not be able to dig sufficiently in depth to see what's in the data and what the, the detail that you would need to do real planning and understanding what, what the real are. Okay, so with that, I will leave you with a question to ponder over the break. Can a smart city create transit? <laughs> 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 <laughs>